a couple of things that I'm seeing is one is like I said, you know, more and more software. So there's more and more ways to solve for things, which means there's more and more automation. So some of the more menial jobs uh, will start to get replaced, even within the tech industry, right? Uh, it'll just be automated. So that's going to cause more pain in the short run, which means people have to upskill themselves, um, try and get into jobs which cannot be automated. But then when you look at the very skilled people, they're getting a little bit of a reality check. Right? Because there was a time when there would there were candidates who would list to us and say, listen, here's my spreadsheet of offers. All of that's simmering down, right? So it's a reality check to say, live within your means. We put a bet on this and tell recruiters that we can find them top talent in 60 seconds. It will come through in 15 or 20 seconds. I remember one MNC very recently gave us this testimonial that Scout actually saved them 50% of their entire sourcing time. That's powerful and we're just getting started. How, how have you been? Good. Feels like it's been forever. Yeah, dude. Coping with a fair bit of whatever's happening in the rest of the world. I honestly speaking, right? I mean, the, it's it's so weird. Like earlier on, we were just talking about it that yeah, we've seen each other yeah. online yeah uh, because during COVID that's right, right. We were running yeah, yeah, all the webinars exactly, and yeah. everything yeah um but we never physically met so exactly. this is actually the first time. But it's so weird that I, it feels as though I know you. Yeah, that's the thing. Right? For quite a while already. And honestly, almost scary, right? As humans, we're used to face-to-face contact more than anything else, but. It's good. Finally, we could make this happen. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, thank you so much for uh, joining. So, um, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for being part of the podcast. And here we have Tushar, the uh, MD of Hacker Trail. Now, if you don't already know what Hacker Trail is, um, it's a wonderful uh, site for specifically techie recruitment, right? And much more. All right. There's a lot of information there focusing on um, how they can help basically staff but uh, enough from me I think Tushar would be the best person to tell uh, talk a little bit more about Hacker Trail itself so please take yeah, it away sure. awesome thanks Edric and thanks for the opportunity for being on your podcast uh, so yeah Hacker Trail is a tech solutions company and focuses on recruitment particularly uh, we've uh, got two sides to the business one side is we actually build pretty cool software and sell that more on a subscription basis to companies that want to hire techies and on the other hand, we've got a consultancy business that helps companies hire top tech talent. But it is definitely to do with tech, definitely to do with talent. We're headquartered in Singapore. We serve the region. Yeah. What's the big difference between regular recruitment yeah. and tech recruitment? Like for me, it's it's really simple. I see job ads for sales, marketing. I mean, of course, these are important roles as well. Don't get me wrong. But they seem like it's more common or more commonly seen. You know, and even logisticians or even blue collar stuff seem much more common. But when it comes to tech hiring, what makes it so different from your regular recruitment? Yeah, I think it's there's a couple of different things, right? So the first one is that tech hiring, when you look at it from a recruiter's lens, if you're looking at a marketer, a recruiter has this age old definition of a marketer and who they are and what they need to be. So I think this familiarity is a key part. But when it comes to tech, it still is a little bit of a black box because when you look at a JD, it doesn't mean you've figured out what exactly the hiring manager is looking for, right? And so I think it requires a little bit of that uncovering, which requires a certain skill. So that's one, which is understanding what that role is about. And then the second part is when you look at it from a match standpoint and candidate standpoint, there is just so much variety. You know, people quite often, even till date, they 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 think that tech recruitment or hiring techies is hiring a software developer. 
right? That's almost considered to be synonymous, but it's not. You know, software dev is one part of tech, and you've got several other parts of tech as well. So I think it's it's just this this lack of understanding of the depth of what's involved in tech. And um, you know, good news from you was that y'all had. Uh, developed a brand new platform as well or a brand new system yep. which really takes away a lot of I would say guesswork yeah absolutely yeah tell us a little bit more about Scarlet sure tail end of 21 is when we bounced back on our feet post COVID etc but then we realized the world had changed the way we do business had changed people were a lot more digitally savvy and so as a result of that, what we started looking at is in our existing software suite, what do we do? How do we shape our business to cater to this new world that's emerged post-COVID? And so that's when Scout was born. And Scout essentially is, uh, even if I say it myself, but it's probably the coolest thing that we've built so far. <laughs> uh, it is an AI-powered candidate sourcing engine. And so what that means is Scout is a tool that recruiters could use effortlessly, very simplistically, to identify top talent as quickly as possible. So we put a bet on this and tell recruiters that we can find them top talent in 60 seconds. And in most cases, Scout will come through in 15 or 20 seconds with the most relevant talent. So I okay. think what we like about the product is that a recruiter could go from a job description to chatting with a candidate in less than a minute. Right. How does that work? I mean, it's not like you can collect everything and just throw it to the recruiter like that, right? Without any kind of, um, I don't know, it could be privacy issues. It could be... Let's say, for example, even getting the right skill sets and the matches. Yeah. How, how do you even get that and just like prove it, so-called prove the case and then give it to the recruiter to, imp to increase their successes? Yeah, great question, right? So I think there's a couple of things in there, right? One is that Scout finds people based on their digital footprint. Mm. And so what that means is that each one of us leave a footprint. When we're actually on the internet, you're browsing a site, whatever else, you're leaving a trail, right? Essentially, whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, you're leaving a trail. And so from Scout's perspective, we follow those trails, right? We try and find people based on those trails, particularly when it comes to their technical acumen, mm. right? So Scout will look for what accomplishments they've had. Um, you know, if someone's been a conference speaker somewhere, if someone tweets about a certain technical subject, Scout will gather all of that information. Right. If they've got a LinkedIn profile, Scout will try and find that as well. Right. So staple it all together and then create this one view of the candidate with so much depth to it and then create a match against the job description. It almost sounds like you're doing ChatGPT for a recruitment. Well, yeah. well, I, I think ChatGPT is super advanced, but I'd say from Scout's perspective, we've got a few nifty tricks that we use as well uh, to get that data together, synthesize it, and then obviously make it presentable in a very, very short amount of time. I don't know much about tech this thing about chat gbt uh i cannot imagine how like say for example job descriptions yeah. do you think anybody will actually use that to write a job description well they do are you serious yeah absolutely our clients do that already are you really yeah yeah, yeah they do they use chat gbt for writing job descriptions for getting things to put into the jd well it, you know it doesn't spit out a ready jd yet but it'll give you a lot of information that you can just plug into your template and get on with it oh my goodness so it's, what, it's what, honestly the other way around as well so they'll okay. use it to interview candidates as well right? no way yeah how, how do you use that to interview candidates it's quite simple you ask chat gpt on what questions you may ask of a particular role and you give, define a certain seniority to it 
you define a language to it and it'll spit it out in a second, right? So Right. And the more yeah. people that keep using it, the more it learns and the accuracy gets higher. For sure. To what extent, right, have you started experimenting with that and even perhaps drawing inspiration from that to improve your own services? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. We learn a lot from tools like this, right? So I think ChatGPT is obviously here to stay, but it's it's also just the start of the journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think what we're particularly intrigued by is the speed with which it can synthesize data. So there's some cues in there that it's been proven that it can be done. And so we use that almost as a, as a guideline from our perspective to say that if ChatGPT can do it in a second, then, you know, we shouldn't be too far behind either. Right, right. right? So that's how we look at it as a little bit of an inspiration. Yeah, you're right. If this uh, person can deliver pizza in 30 exactly. minutes or less, right, or it's free, exactly. we can do it in 29, yeah, right? That kind go. of thing. Well, if we match 30 as well, we'll be fine for now <laughs> at ChatGPT speeds. Yeah, but that's really, really fast. I mean, yeah. the fact that you're able to get it in a couple of seconds yeah. and... Um, you know, you're you're boasting what in a minute, yes, right? That's you right, yeah. you, you want to be able to connect somebody and a recruiter. That's and right. earlier on, you mentioned that they are all through to WhatsApp, yeah. down to that level yeah. already. So, um, walk me through that process. Scout in its general, super simplistic dashboard. Mm-hmm. Someone goes in there, loads a job. Scout tries to figure out what the job is about, and you hit the find candidates button, and that's what it'll do. It'll go scout for candidates. It'll try and get as much information as possible, synthesize that, rank it, and then give it to you as quickly as possible. Now, off the back of that, Scout is smart because it realizes that when you're focused on a candidate, that's a candidate of interest, so it'll try and dig up more on them as much as is possible. Uh, including contact information wherever publicly available, right? Mm -hmm. So from a privacy standpoint, we look at publicly available data. If we can't get access to it publicly, then Scout can't find it. We are also quite clear on the usage of Scout. So this is designed only for recruiters. There's a big consent form that they go through to make sure they're going to use this data for recruitment and nothing else. Mm. What's, What's been the growth for it's your been site. fantastic, to be honest. It is electric, simply because people get it, right? Uh, what we've learned, again, this is synthesis of learning to work with various different customers. We're we're blessed, fortunate. We've built up a roster of a little over 170 clients. And so as a function of that, we've really experienced what it takes to cater to a startup versus an MNC versus an SME, catering to someone in Singapore versus Indonesia versus India. And so as a function of that, we've learned how to design something which is lightweight, easily consumable and that's really helping us so clients have come back i remember one mnc very recently gave us this testimonial that scout actually saved them 50 percent of their entire sourcing time right if you think about that using one software saving your sourcing time by 50 percent that's powerful and we're just getting started yeah absolutely so it can only get better yeah right from there and this is a fantastic bounce back but before we start going into you know the the, the, the greater successes moving forward, I'd just like to go back to the humble beginnings of Hacker Trail. What was the gap initially that you were trying to fill? What was the problem that you saw and you went, yeah. hey, you know, if nobody solves it, I might as well do it myself. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think it takes me back several years, of course. And uh, when I started the company, I think uh, I was pretty sure that I, had, I wanted to quit my corporate job and start you know, a company, and I sort of looked at four or five different business models. I even explored another business model which had to do with importing exotic uh, uh, products from Europe and selling them in India. And you know, exotic products different. meaning what? Exotic animals? Uh, well, no, no, no. 
<laughs> exotic people. It's, it's, I it's mean, more we're like, <laughs> <laughs> what trade are we in now? <laughs> we're talking about home accents. We're talking about things like Murano glassware and stuff like that, right? Okay, Which is okay. super high priced, but it was uh, perfect for the bloated middle class in India that had started okay. to make a ton of money, right? But uh, nevertheless, explored multiple models and. Um, I actually settled at uh, Scout or I, I settled at Hacker Trail or I started Hacker Trail because one of the things that I faced uh, through my corporate life as I must have hired north of 200 people myself is that hiring for tech was always hard. Mm. I worked for some of the choicest companies on the block, had access to tools, recruitment agencies, the whole spectrum, but it never got easier. It was always hard hiring someone. I said, there has to be a better way to solve this. And so that's... That's where Hackertrail started with our first product. At that time, it was just called Hackertrail itself. And uh, yeah. So, so, what was the MVP like when you first made it, right? It must have been like the clunkiest piece of thing, whatever. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Do you uh, recall? And I'm sure it's a far cry from what you have right now. But do you recall the, the moment it went out there and the question that you had? to look for investors. Is this going to work? Is this, does it even look nice enough? So here's an interesting one, and every founder's got their own journey, right? right. But because I had been an animator at some point in the past, um, so my view on design and aesthetics, etc., was arguably one or two notches higher. That's the way I thought, because I was delivering for mainstream you know, cinema and commercials, mm-hmm. right? And so even my MVP looked really good. Right. It had basic functionality, but it looked really good, right. which is why I was able to woo our first set of investors, get them on board and get that story going. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And do you think that that's something that other founders who are trying to do the MVP get that right as well? Like, I mean, sad to say, but aesthetics do have a part to play. Right. It looks more finished. You're right. Polished. I'm sorry. But one thing which I have learned is if someone will buy a shitty product, they'll definitely buy a pretty product. That is true. Right, so... Never, that's, seen, that's, never thought about it that way. They, they, it absolutely it just touches on the pain point then. Right. You know, if someone is willing to compromise on UX, etc., they don't care, they just want to use your product, means you're really solving a pain point, right? And then, so when you start to get better at it, like you said, it's only one way from there is getting better. That is very yeah. interesting. I never thought about it that way. And, you know, as you, as you had mentioned, right, I had no idea that you had started as an animator. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that you've probably been in banking finance, you've been in tech, you've been just all of that. But how does one start with animation and all of a sudden just fall in love with tech? It's just... <laughs> to be honest, there's a lot of tech involved in that as well. So I wasn't a 2D animator. I was a 3D animator. So right. software for me was was the only way that I could get to my outcome. Okay. So I think I remember learning Photoshop way back, uh, you know, wow. okay. 25, 30 years ago and when getting Flash familiar still, with that. Flash was yes. still around. Uh, shows the age as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dreamweaver <laughs> was like the thing there you right, go, right? The yeah. Dreamweaver 1.0. So oh, gosh. I was a 1.0 user, right? Yeah. So I mean, uh, from there on, I, that's when I built that. But uh, my, I had done a three-year degree in tech before that as well. Oh. So I was always very cued into tech. Mm. And then from there out, uh, I, I got into banking tech and then evolved from there, yeah. Right, right, right. And all this was over in India, right? Uh, so the animation you? part was in India, and right. then I spent about a decade on Wall Street. So I got most of, most of my career was built out on Wall Street, got to work with some of the choicest companies on the block, um, and then Barclays actually shipped mm. me to Singapore back in 2010. I yeah. see. So the days <clears throat> in Wall Street, I mean, everybody wants to live that life, mm. you know, back in the day. What was the appeal of being part of Wall Street? Uh, 
it's really tough to describe i mean michael douglas the, right the, the <laughs> 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 i remember i got my first job with goldman sachs after seven rounds of interview and when i stepped into that office on day one i was blown away i mean I, that's just one of those moments i'll never forget right and from there i think it was just something different walking down that street is a little bit special yeah, for walk me walk me through that the first day at goldman sachs yeah, walk so me through that it's it's quite something because i mean you're surrounded by people who are absolutely brilliant at what they do it's goldman sachs it was obviously one of the leading banks on the street and it still is right and um, what i liked about that company over many of the others that i worked with is they have that special vibe i kid you not i mean it's just they hire top quality people and they've they've created that weave that cultural weave where everyone thinks and breathes the same language and you can feel that energy when you're there you know i mean um i remember this one story you actually taking me back 20 years now where the md at the time um he uh, we, we had a problem we had a, a tech issue and a production issue and then so someone came back and said hey listen it's broken and our users are yelling etc and then so the md we walked over to uh, um the the software developer who was working that software and he asked him said what's wrong why can't we get it sorted and so the guy was like i just can't figure it out and then he asked him to move over and he started looking at the code himself wow <laughs> right <laughs> it was at that point i was like oh my god you know because if you scroll down in the code version 1.0 was written by that guy <laughs> right so, so he probably crazy. know some hidden <laughs> yeah. stuff in there right that nobody else would know yeah so those kind of things right those kind of experiences wow yeah. so so in other words like what what i'm getting from this story is that you don't forget your roots yeah right sure. you Absolutely. know where you come from Absolutely. but that doesn't necessarily mean you have to do everything yourself turn sure. right and in in that case as you progressed through that you know uh, hiring a lot of people and eventually opening up your own company is this something that you take with you that you don't do everything yourself you really have to learn how to delegate you really have to be able to trust your team and just somehow rather leverage on them to develop their dream with you and and that's that's exactly right right because as a founder you're never short of things to do right optimizing your time is a constant struggle because you're just trying to get better at who you are and what you do and grow the company and sort of build this castle mid air right. right and so i think you can't do that without a trusted team you can't do that without entrusting people with very key tasks and decisions and giving them the latitude to not get it right mm. right that's the most important thing it's not just about the trust it's about the latitude such that if they do fail the first time around it's all right it's all right i wouldn't say it's no big deal reflect on it get better at it but it's all right you know let's mm. experiment man industry has been shifting the layoffs have been crazy what's been happening why are there people being laid off i don't get it so if you think about why businesses come about is for growth mm-hmm. right and when the single th- in my reflections anyway for what it's worth right is that the single largest thing that drives growth is not your opportunity i think it's what you look at from your peers as well right so when you look at all of the fang companies etc everyone started hiring like crazy because no one wanted to miss the boat right and so they ramped up tens of thousands of people and did this and that etc and then um it was all well placed at the time because people made some assumptions on new trends that would appear and some of those trends appeared and some did not so what followed from there was layoffs now we had interestingly had experienced the same thing a little bit with lehman brothers it in 5 years they went from 8000 to about 26000 people right so that's a phenomenal amount of growth mm-hmm. 
and Lehman was able to handle it just fine. They had some fallouts after that and so on and so forth. Right. But they were able to handle it just fine. Mm-hmm. When you look at that at mass scale with so many companies doing the same thing, then suddenly you're in the situation where everyone is overstaffed, right? And if you look at overall layoffs and percentages, when people are laying off you know, 5%, 7% of their staff or perhaps even 10%, obviously that stings. It stings like a bee, but... What they're doing is they're again, once again, reacting to the market, right? right. So I think it's just it, the reality of it. Is but it almost sounded like they're victims of their own success. Like, they are. Because, you know, they suddenly just decided, okay, I'm going to expand. I'm going to get a lot more people. I need to fulfill that growth. But it almost feels like, I don't know, it. how, how would I put this without sounding too idealistic? Yeah. But because I'm seeing growth, I want my, I, I need to fulfill my business. Yeah. But when I, no longer have that. I have. To, I'm just gonna let these people go. It, it, to an extent, it almost sounds heartless. Yeah. But is that really the case? My experience is that, and I should be careful when I say this, but my experience is that you know companies are companies, right? So they think with their brain, not with their heart. Everything is calculated. People are at the end of the day a number yeah. on a file. That file gets indexed, put forward, etc. I mean, why do people refer to head heart count, right? Right. Why is head count such an important measure? It's exactly that because it's heads, yep. right? And so heads can go up, heads can go down. But w- I'm just wondering, right? If, if let's say, for example, if if companies were to actually say, you know, that this is not going to happen forever, yeah. So why why won't they just take contract staff instead of offering full time roles? Is it is it because of they want to attract the the top talent over and Honestly, try and hold them? That's a great question. Again, I'll go back to Goldman Sachs as well. Um, even back then, yeah, Goldman, Goldman Sachs has only a few a few years of contract, right? Is that true? They, they have few years of contract, but I don't know what the latest is. But what I remember from back then is that we had twenty four or twenty six thousand employees, right? And we had another twenty thousand contractors, oh. right? So that's how they were styled as well, right? Super heavy on the contracting side because they needed people for a few years and they would solve a certain purpose. Right. But I think what we're talking about is the people who overstaffed are the people who went after more so software engineers, folks within the tech space in general. And so what they said is that this is not a temporary thing. Everything is going gangbusters. And because people have four or five different options, if I offer them a contract role while someone else is offering them a full-time role, it's not going to work. I'm going to lose out on that talent. Let's bring them on as full-time employees. Let's give them stock. Let's give them bonuses, etc. While the going's good, everything's good. When it falls apart, then everything does, right? Yeah, that's that's where I felt that it was very unrealistic. Yeah. You know, um, even when uh, uh, hearing from the service industry, it was insane like how much they were paying part-timers yeah. just to join the service industry again during that period, right? Just because it was so desperate for manpower. And then my question after that was, okay, well, let's wait six months to a year and are you able to fulfill that rate anymore mm. or are you just going to let them go yeah. even though they've performed very well but yeah. because they become a real cost center to yeah. you, yeah. then it kind of defeats the purpose of why you hired them in the first place. Mm. You know, That level of desperation cannot be sustained. Correct. And because of that, people and their families do suffer. Yeah. So I find that there could have been a much better way to actually do that. Like, if, you know, in your opinion... Mm how do you think tech companies could approach this if let's say another wave happens again? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other wave is going to happen, right? I mean, waves are going to continue on. It's just part of the, how cycles work, but perfectly honest, I think tech companies are 
explosively reactive to growth right so they don't want to let up any chance or opportunity right because they think they're going to lose out to their competition the optics don't look good i think you know the the articles online are littered with that information right, right. so i think that's what we're going to see as well that tech companies will be opportunistic they are going to do that that being said one of the things which is happening is there's more and more ai coming in and while ai was a buzzword earlier on it's getting a lot more real world applications at scale and so what we're seeing now is that tech companies are thinking about software first automation optimization first before adding heads at scale mm okay we see that in you know even from our lens from an hr recruitment perspective we see that you know significant change in mindset that you know simple case recruitment coordinators right um some of the most not archaic but fairly old school mature businesses that we work with um their thought process is uh, why do i go and hire a whole bunch of recruitment coordinators why don't i just use software to go back and forth arrange for interviews automatically and put it on everyone's diary and because it's become such a plug and play now it's it's easy for them to think about it that way so i think we'll see a large part of automation come in as well oh that's very interesting i, I was actually looking at the other way whereby if the companies don't change yeah shouldn't we also do something to help uh the applicants be more discerning about that to also take away that mental model right or that impression or bias that i need to have a full time one versus a contract one true because I, the the weight <clears throat> of it is just on the future stability right but at the end of the day if we already know that this thing is not going mm. to be um as well it doesn't have the same level of longevity mm. what makes any what makes it different yeah sure I mean I've I've got some pretty strong thoughts on this to be honest uh, I've I've been laid off myself when I was part of Lehman Brothers because Lehman fell and then right. it was absorbed into Barclays and thankfully I got grandfathered in subsequently but it's a horrible feeling right mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Uh, saying this even first hand and uh, us as a company going through our waves as well where um when we bring people on board it's obviously an intensely personal decision and sometimes when we have to let people go for performance reasons or whatever else then it's it's hard right um but the one thing is uh, my 25 years have led me to believe that you you look at how do i say this when you hire people before you were trying to always as a company you always try and inspire loyalty you try and almost buy loyalty in some cases by having a fancy pantry and you know some companies offer massages and all of that kind of stuff right but now what we're seeing is that the gen z's of the world they're less about salary salary is still important but they're more about experience what they care about more so is the experience that they're going to have the people they're going to work with the 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 impact that they have to the larger world and to the organization and all of that right so if you think about that mindset it's super cool because that doesn't really lend itself to a contract role versus a full time role it lends itself to being fulfilling in their objectives being fulfilled in their objectives doing something meaningful contributing where it's real value not perception of value right so i think i'm i'm quite encouraged by that aspect of the gen z's right that they they want to take that on they want to they want to do something which they feel proud about right and salary is one component of it but that's not where it stops right and yeah. uh, you mentioned earlier on i mean this is off air as well that the gen z's i mean that trend in itself yeah. is going to be so unique because they are born 
into technology. Yeah. You know, like the big difference is that Gen X had no, well, very little technology, right? Considering it's like the steam engine yeah. that was when it starts, yeah. uh, industrialization, so on and so forth. Gen Ys or millennials are kind of half half. Yeah. You know, we have, we saw the transition of technology or the birth of technologies uh, as we know it today. And Gen Zs, on the other hand, are just, they've got everything at their fingertips. They so, used to it. That's how they wanted. So how yeah. does that make them so unique in, in, in the tech world now? Yeah. Uh, one thing for sure is that Gen Zs, so, you know, again, going back to older generations, mm -hmm. they used to solve problems by themselves. And when they couldn't find it, they try and find a degree of automation or software to solve it. Gen Zs start with software first. Mm -hmm. right? They start off solving, start thinking about solving problems using an app or using a certain piece of software or productivity tool or whatever else it is, right? So they're wired that way. And so what that means is their general bar of what they bring to the workplace is much higher. They're not they're not folks who get worried about new software coming in, artificial intelligence, etc., that could displace their jobs. That's the starting point for their jobs. So I think it's it's overall the way that you know us as a human race should be progressing, mm -hmm. right? Where people establish or assume a certain norm and then they build from there. So I think that's where I see uh, the difference um, in in how Gen Zs work. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's really interesting. Um, I mean, I've had. Numerous conversations, right, with uh, people with different generations about this, and uh, as much as I, I see that yes, the technology is there. They'll be able to, to just know. They're so resourceful with it. They yeah. can find anything and everything, right? Yeah. The only challenge is the relationship aspect of things, sure. the soft skills of yeah. things, because yeah. technology technically has no feelings. Yeah, if you wanted to do that, so so technically, if you're born into technology, we got it put a little bit more emphasis on the soft skills, communications, and um, becoming human again, strangely enough, right? Um, do you foresee, do you see that as a challenge if you were the higher, younger, uh, younger generation of, of uh, techies? Honestly, what I see so far is that they're connected to their own ecosystem, but they've built their own ecosystem very quickly. Mm -hmm. They know who they want to engage with, how they want to engage. They've got very clear role templating in their head at least based on my interactions. Role so, templating, what is that? In the sense that, you know, if I've got work, I've got work, I've got play, I've got play. Mm -hmm. Mixing the two, I, while it would happen more so with previous generations, mm -hmm. I think it happens almost lesser with this generation to really? a certain extent. Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah, yeah. And now that you bring it up, yeah, I, I like to play at work. I want my work to feel like play. Mm. I don't want it to be like, oh, you know, like uh, nine o'clock, I'm going to slog. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm a different person from yeah. who I am after six. Yeah. And I think if you see a lot of the wisdom that people are talking about, there's a lot of people who are in their 30s and their 40s who talk about that intertwined ability to say, you know, work-life balance, it's, it's about balancing at work. It's about balancing with your life. But what I see, at least my, my two cents of experience so far, is that the younger generation sees it as a shut-off and a shut-on. And for them, it's mutually exclusive. So when, when things shut off at 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock or whenever they wind down for the day, then they're done, right? right. And let's not intertwine that any further than that. Right. Let's pick it up the next morning. Do you, do you think that they'll uh, go through what we've gone through, which is that whole, I need to learn how to unplug myself. Yeah. But technically, they're always plugged in. Like my kid, he's like, what, 11, coming 12, right? It's once, uh, once it says, okay, that's enough screen time. Computer's off. He goes on his phone. I'm like, yo, you, do you get what screen time means? 
So, so I have the same problem with a six-year-old. Really? <laughs> so, so yeah. I mean, like as a parent, right? And yeah. it's it's doubly. Um, I don't even want to say it's it's doubly troubling, yeah. if not, uh, to to see that because knowing that this is gonna happen, but yet we're still trying to do something about it, right? So, how do you find that balance? I, I mean, honestly, I think this dovetails a little bit into the mental wellness side of things, right? If I could call it that, because even at this age, um, it's interesting that I was having a chat with a friend who's uh, a pediatrician, and she was telling me on the number of recommendations she's had to make. For, for for mothers or fathers to go take their kids, uh, meet specialists and talk through anxiety issues and all of that at the age of eight, nine and ten, she said she was just she, she was just so surprised to see the the number of people coming through with that. And I think it's it's an important subject and I don't think many people have figured it out on what the right answer is. Right. But um, it is real. It is real. The, the folks have so much of digital exposure, and that's going to cause confusion at some point. It's going to, you know, awareness leads to confusion as well, right? Mm. So um, I, I'd say it's an interesting time for us to be a parent as well. Yeah, to I mean, navigate those times. Would right? you yeah. even be a parent at work? Let's say put again? it that way. Would you be a parent at work? Because you've got people here, and they're probably perpetually plugged in. At what point do you also step in and go, guys? We're in tech but doesn't mean we have to be in tech. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, can we like go outside, get some sun? You all are pasty as hell. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think we see that now. Thankfully, the offices are open again. So yeah. we get to interact a lot more. Um, actually, one of the one of the side byproducts of working from home is that obviously you don't get to build enough culture, right? You lose out on that. Yeah, uh, true. Even during COVID times, 21 as well, a few people that we hired... They ended up leaving in two or three months because they just didn't build any sort of a bond with anyone at the company. And uh, I think you know we are human beings; we love to interact with each other, right? So, yeah, yeah. We we try and mix that up in work as well as much as is possible. Um, try and create that feeling of uh, friendship, if I could call it that, where people can be, uh, people can have open dialogue, not water cooler conversations, but open dialogue and connect with each other as opposed to just working with each other. You're right, you're right. Both are actually very important. Yeah. The water cooler one kind of takes the edge off of things. The yeah, open conversation. Well. <laughs> the open conversation helps to really deep is really deep conversation. Yeah. So um the work that we do as well, you know, on our side is um we encourage a lot of this. Because mm. at the end of the day, you know, relationships the foundation of any relationship is still um, communication, yeah. right? You can't just sit next to each other and you know telepathically yeah. connect, right? Like, <laughs> Not yet, anyway. Yeah, well, oh, do you do you think? Uh, well, okay. Well, now we're going off on a tangent, well, but companies you, are getting funded on that. Are they? <laughs> yeah. To to wait wait. What what do you mean? The, the, For chips, right? I mean, Elon Musk talks about chips in the brain all the time, right? So. But do you really think that's possible? I mean, there was a beautiful uh, Korean movie yeah. uh, on Netflix. Uh, I think it's called Jong uh, Jong E. Okay. It's basically kind of ghost in the shell whereby they're able to keep replicating brains okay. based on uh, stored memories, right? So they keep replicating and synthesizing the brain mm. and then inputting it into an exoskeleton and that person's consciousness keeps playing over and over again. So every time, let's say they run simulations, she keeps getting killed in the same... Mm. She's like top soldier, right? Yeah, Something yeah. like that. She keeps getting killed. There was a movie uh, earlier on with... Uh, <clears throat> I think who it was. I think it's Vin Diesel. It was a similar movie that yeah, came is out. That Bloodshot? Well. Bloodshot. Yeah, that, that, yeah, was, yeah. that was like nanotech, yeah, right? Yeah, that was nanotech. a little different. <laughs> uh, but I, I don't understand how 
the human memories could really be digitized to that extent. Mm. Yes, it can be. I mean, look, we're digitizing film, mm. right? We're digitizing our recordings. Mm. And this, again, um, this is one of the weirdest things that uh, we've been talking about, like friends and I. When was the last time you actually scrolled through the pictures in your phone? Sure. Right? And, <laughs> sure. and did the cl- declutter. Yeah. Like, remember, we had cameras, right? Yeah. That you only, only take, hold 20, oh, 20, 20 <laughs> something and you could squeeze in maybe yeah, one or yeah. two right until the thing starts to, to roll up yeah. and you get like half a picture yeah, left or something yeah, yeah. and those are because you knew it was scarce yeah. so every picture meant something now mm. it's like you take 15 pictures of the of, of a plate of food yeah you know at like you know micro angles that are different yeah that's about it yeah. but yet we never do that declutter mm. so the value of those things now are not the same and I'm just wondering how does one now keep these memories? Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. It is hard. I mean, I, I, I think each one of us has our own perspectives on it, but you're right. It's, it's uh, thank God for the favorites folder. Oh, I'll say that. Wow, I haven't even <laughs> used mine, to be honest, because it's so easy to just click the star. And uh, again, I was, just, it I was just, just doing the math the other day. I have, uh, because uh, I was switching phones and I have like 8,000 photos out of Good which I had God. about... 90 or 100 of them sitting in the favorites folder which was kind of nice I went through that 90 or 100 right. and validated those were still my favorites but uh, the rest of the 7,900 no not so much yeah 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 it's like oh, all I have to do is okay I have to like go through pictures and kind of put them into folders yeah. extract them and try and put them somewhere and that also makes me wonder man what am I going to do with them how often do I actually look at these mm. things like it was so weird because I was looking through them. I was thinking, wait a minute, where am I going to store these things? Mm. And should I still print them out? Mm. Like there's something about it, right? In the physical realm sure. that still is there. And that's the reason why I can't get into um, uh, crypto back then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, that was that was quite a kerfuffle. If yeah. you wanted to say that. Uh, <laughs> it still is. <laughs> it still is, right? Look what's happening. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, let's put it this way. I can't understand and I cannot get behind something that I cannot physically own. Mm. So it's really tough. Yeah. So I'm yeah. guessing you don't own any NFTs then? No, not <laughs> at all. Not at all. Because, I, like I said, I can't invest in something that I don't understand because that would be foolhardy on my, or at least in, in, in my limited view. Sure. Um, if I can't believe in it and I don't see the promise of it, I suppose, mm. it's hard, man. I can't, like, I can't buy a piece of art and all that. So I've been asking around from time to time what is the premise of an NFT and how is that expected to give me perks? You're asking me? Yeah, I'm asking you. I have no idea because I'm not a believer. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm not a believer in NFTs myself. (laughs) So you didn't get yours? No, no, no. I didn't didn't either. I just toyed with the idea of having an ownership in that space but uh, no I thought it was uh, fool's play to yeah. be honest did you I even identify one item that you went just maybe no I actually saw like the NFTs monkey which one were, which or something purchased by others and I looked at that there were a few cool Singapore specific ones which were launched very recently I think I saw those look pretty cool but you know obviously not something that I'm going to pay thousands of dollars right, for right right yeah. not like the the other one who was just like cropping herself into the uh, out, out of uh, I don't know it's so badly that, done yeah. yeah it was it looked like you could just use MS Paint yeah. and just crop yourself <laughs> out and place it there and all of a sudden empty I don't know how that works I mean I was joking with my son I said listen you're 6 by the time you're 15 or 18 or whatever the legal driving age will be at the time he's probably gonna license, get a license to drive a car and 
a flying car at the same time. <laughs> you really think he's going to be uh, it's going to happen in those uh hell yeah. Really? You really think that VTOL flying cars are going to be here in the next 10-15 years? I I seriously believe that that will become a reality very quickly. Well, whether it's going to be allowed in, you know, tight streets on the streets of Singapore or not, I don't know. Right? Maybe they need more space so there's some constraints there, but I think it will definitely become a commercial reality in the next decade. Hmm. It's just nature of the beast. Everyone's right. trying to become, you know, get closer to each other. Right. Faster modes of transportation. So, you know, why not air taxis? True, true, true. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you are a very big fan of science fiction. So I'm just going to ask you a <laughs> quick question there. Um, uh, so what's your, favorite mo- what's your favorite science fiction movie? Science fiction movie? I don't think I have one. You don't? Oh, no, you I don't, don't have one favorite, but you've probably like watched a million of them. No, no, no. Seriously, I'm not that much of a science fiction buzz. Dude, I mean, you I, believe in flying cars. So what? So it's got to be, right? Like you watched it The Jetsons is, as a kid. I'm sure is, that's science fiction. It is a reality. That's not fiction anymore. That's a reality. Some of the people I follow on LinkedIn, uh, I think there's one guy, I forget his name, but he built this company called Archer. I think it's okay. called Archer. And so they just got their approval for the first commercially available flying taxis. And United Airlines bet heavy on them, a few billion dollars worth, right, to produce the first set of commercial taxis. Right? So it's happening. It's happening. This is 2023, right? So Flying taxis. Yeah. I mean, drones were one thing. I, I, I do recall watching the videos where uh, I think they had... Which one was it? Yeah, there was this. It really looked like massive, like a massive drone. Mm. You could just fly it. You know? way, and these, the ones that I'm talking about, four seaters, they're EVs, right? So and they're flying. Yeah, <laughs> it's 23. Think about what happens in 10 years. Well, we're gonna need lighter parachutes. That's <laughs> you're gonna need bigger parachutes. That's all I can tell you. Yeah, because I mean, just thinking about it, right? If you're talking about a three-dimensional. Um, uh, transport system mm. how complex is that going to be you know, when when you watch certain movies and you just see flying cars all over the place you're like how how do we even navigate this now and everybody is now officially a pilot so unless you're talking about building certain space roads right well that's the thing right so I think some of the movies have space roads or a concept of space lanes it's about how they make it a reality. Right. Complete it's tangent from recruitment, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, but still. I, I, but it is. Eventually, that's going to be your space. Yeah. You're going to be looking at... Everybody's going to be a techie. If, I mean, if, if I were to draw this back to at this parallel. At least have a tech bone in them, yeah. It has to be, yeah. right? To, you have to know how to press buttons. Yeah. That's the first thing, right? Uh, you have to understand how it works. And not only that, if let's say, for example, we are really talking about flying taxis, even the taxi drivers are going to have to do have to understand very... They're going to have to understand code, error error codes, how to rectify them real quick. Sure. And it's not just pressing a button and eject. You yeah. know, and, oh, okay, sorry, just remember to pay your fare on the way down. Bye. Right? It's not going to be the case, but they, they, they've, Hopefully got not. To, yeah, they've got to know, right? Uh, if not, how are they going to deal with that stuff? Yeah. So fair it, enough, fair enough. The, the IQ of the person who's driving a taxi should be at a certain level for oh, sure. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But, I mean, yeah. unless you're saying that it's going to be an unmanned yeah. one, which we already have, right? Un- uh, uh, unmanned cars, unmanned ten buses. Years, ten years from now, I'm not going to rule out anything. Yeah, right? uh, Singapore's already testing it out, right? With the unmanned buses mm. uh, around a couple of places in Singapore. Um, how Man, that, that's a completely different role altogether. But do you foresee that these are things that will fall under your platform eventually? 
Flying vehicles? No, no, flying vehicle <laughs> operators, programmers. Well, yeah, I mean, to, to be honest, anything to do with tech, right? And uh, in in many senses, we are, we're trying to go much broader than tech as well. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at finance as one discipline, uh, marketing as the other, because we think that we can use our technology, extrapolate that a little bit to cover those areas as well. So oh. I think that's what we're working on. Okay, yeah. cool, yeah. cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Nice. Now, um, I want to also see is like... Um, Earlier on, we were mentioning things like uh, uh, that the tech industry has not exactly been in the best place, and mm. certain things haven't been so kind. And um, Hacker Trail also has not has also fallen victim to that. I yep. would say, right? You have not been spared. Yep. So, letting people go is not easy. I'm just wondering, like, how does one even make that decision to well allow that to happen? Well, so I mean, the short answer is that it's very hard, right? I think I was telling you this before as well, right, that one of the reasons why I became a founder is because I get to pick the people that I want to work with. I get to solve the problems that I want to solve for the customers that I want to solve for. And that's very, very gratifying. But it's all about the people. We're building a business with people, right? So when you have to change that paradigm and you have to let people go, um, it is hard. It is hard. It's a lot of sleepless nights before and after. It's a lot of guilt, which you try and decouple from yourself as much as is possible. Um, and I think what you start to do is you take a very, I don't think practical is the right word, but you take a very um, concerted approach to say that, what's the best that you can do to try and mitigate that, right? to try and avoid that as much as is possible. right? Um, so there have been times, for example, at the company when We've had a really rough patch. We've had to, we've had to cut down people's salaries, and we've had to do it across the board, right? And that's hard. That's really, really hard as well. It's much better than letting more people go because at least people have a job. Uh, but it's hard all the same. And so I think there is no easy answer. Right. Uh, we feel the pain. It continues to live in every founder as they get on with their mm. days and weeks and while you're trying to put up a, a smiling face behind the scenes you feel like shit right right let's say in hindsight is there any way that you would advise yourself how you could have avoided this or made a different transition well so I think if so this this you know obviously it's a loaded statement right so when you look at companies of our size we don't really go out on a hunch and hire tens of people. Right. Right. We don't. Right. We're not going to grow by 100% just for the sake of it to see what happens in the market. So for us, it's a much more calculated decision. Bringing someone on is a much more calculated decision. If that decision was wrong or flawed and we had just brought people on for the sake of it, then, of course, there's a very clear learning from there. Don't bring people on for the sake of it. Right. Right. Um, but if it's a calculated decision... Um, then you have to make the best of what you have with the resources that you have and you can't really slice it any other way mm. right so I think it's uh, what what we unfortunately face is um, and it's, it's particular of small companies is you have to dance a little bit to the market right? because unless you're a company that's raised tens of millions of dollars and you've got cash sitting in the bank nothing to worry about doesn't matter if you've got a business model or not that's different mm. But if you're trying to build that honest step-by-step -step business, the cockroach entrepreneur, as they call it, then that requires you to be frugal. It requires you to be on point all the time. Mm. So I'd say my lessons and my learnings from this is that um, 
as much as is possible react to the market as quickly as possible mm. right and 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 don't hesitate to react because the further you wait uh, the longer you wait the bigger the impact right and in terms of let's say for example cash flow would yeah. you ever tell someone make sure that you have you calculate all of that in for you know like uh, for personally right they always say that before you uh, leave any job or anything you yeah. should have six months of savings right in yeah. your bank account so is that something that is also applicable to a business um, I'd say only that it's not six months it's much longer right? because six months is too short mm. right? six months is already game over right uh, so unless your business is running at break even or profitable or whatever else then that's different right, right. then you're, 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 you're in the black Right. But for many businesses, many startups that are struggling or many founders that think about or, or, you know, employees of companies that think about stepping away to become a founder, I'd say your personal runway should be no less than two to three years. Wow. Right? Okay. Two to three years. So in other words, you're supposed to have two to three years of reserve. That's right. That you should be able to survive with minimum salary, if at all for at least two to three years. Right? If you can't do that, don't take that leap of faith, hold off, uh, go raise some money first. If someone's willing to bet on you, I mean, obviously we're going a little bit on a tangent, but if you're starting your own company and someone's mm -hmm. willing to bet on you, take the money first, get all of those sorted before you actually step away from your job. Right, I see, I see. Okay, yeah. that's very interesting. Um, but for existing businesses, I, I would assume that, yeah, that two to three year amount, my God, I never thought that it would be that far ahead yeah, to have two are, to three years. I really thought that it was only like six months. No, well, I'm, I'm not saying that everyone has the latitude for two to three yeah, years. But right? ideally, right? Ideally, that would right? be the That's magic number, yeah? do, right? Because it takes time for economies to turn around. It doesn't right. happen overnight. And if you think about it from that perspective, it's just logical. Right. right, and why is it? You, I mean, as a as a founder, right, and as a as a leader, how come these things aren't communicated openly to staff? Like mm. I've never heard this. I've I've been working on the corporate for like what over a decade now. Mm. Nobody's ever told me that. Okay, this is our plan. Mm. We're really looking to drive this in the next mm. three years, so that you you have a job, mm. right? You have security. We can provide mm. you with that security mm. over the next five years, and mm. that's what we're gunning for. Mm. So if you would like to help us with this, mm. you know, let's let's do this together. You know, mm. to me it's like if I heard that, I'm like, wow, that means you can so-called you can guarantee, regardless of market forces, mm. that I could still get a fixed salary or at least I, I have stable salary and maybe even bonuses at the end of the every year for the next five years, mm. assuming that we are able to achieve these things. Mm. So like, if you think about if you think about what that means for more mature companies, it's much easier. Right, because they can they've got established lines of revenue, established lines of growth, etc. They know right. where the market's headed. They've got also a little bit of fat, and as part of the company, right? Overall, so that's how their projections work. But for earlier stage companies, transparency is key. Right. So sharing with audiences as to where the market's headed, what's happening, etc. So I remember one of the things that we started doing at Hacker Trail was that um, as the war started to get super serious somewhere in even July and August of last year, we started, we started think, talking aggressively about, you know, what's happening in the market, how things are slowing down, where changes are coming about, change in mindset, uh, how some of our clients may not have run out of money, but they're starting to pause a little bit because they're, they're reflecting on, they're, 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 for them it's new information as well, so they're reflecting on that. Right. And so us as an ancillary industry are going to face impact of that and so, you know, dealing with that impact, right? And the, the only thing that 
we unfortunately can't do most companies can't do is predict how bad it will be when it does go bad right so that's an open ended thing um, right. you don't know if the war's going to end you don't know if another war's going to come off the back of that and what that will do to your business you don't know if um, you know it is it, economics is com- complicated right you don't know if there's going to be a ripple impact somewhere in some pocket of your client segments that's now going to move away completely so just as an example uh, we've got a fair number of insurance clients right and insurance is obviously a ever booming industry from one lens yep now so far it's not been impacted great but we don't know if there is an underlying current somewhere that connects into the insurance industry somehow that causes them to pause right so there are those unknowns that most companies cannot decipher it's 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 literally as simple as that so we read we read aggressively we read voraciously trying to figure out what the best way forward is yeah right but i think doing it in concert with everyone is important moving forward right uh, i think you've already answered the question of what's next for hacker trail yeah what do you think's next for the industry all signs suggest that the companies will start rebuilding in q1 next year oh yeah right all signs suggest that lots of companies are already warming up for that because they know that this is temporary you know everything fades over time right it breezes over but i think a couple of things that i'm seeing is one is like i said you know more and more software so there's more and more ways to solve for things which means there's more and more automation so some of the more menial jobs uh, will start to get replaced even within the tech industry right uh, it'll just be automated so that's going to cause more pain in the short run which means people have to upskill themselves um try and get into jobs which cannot be automated right so that's that part is going to happen mm. um but then when you look at the very skilled people they're getting a little bit of a reality check right? because there was a time when there would there were candidates who would list to us and say listen here's my spreadsheet of offers i've got eight offers on the table three of them are offering me equity and all of that simmering down right so it's a reality check to say live within your means right because nothing lasts forever right if you've got those golden handcuffs hold on to them you know because that may be your only one if you're actually out there in the market again you may not get that same salary so that level set and that adjustment and that reality check is happening right so um, can't help it we have to deal with it um so that's that's the second thing which is you know one is upskilling second thing is dealing with what the market is throwing your way Uh, i'd say the third thing is that um uh which is i think working in favor of all of us it's at a macro level most companies that are most economies that are booming they're investing a lot in education hmm. so if you look at that there's more universities that are coming up which are teaching tech that means so many more engineers by the hundreds and the thousands entering the workforce right and so that's going to help more supply would mean that we're going to get to a more balanced mature equilibrium thanks so much for sharing all of that and it this is a great you know an hour spent with you already uh and it's just blown by but uh we always have one last segment that we always do with every guest which okay. is a quick fire round okay. of 10 questions so everybody gets to know you better and um, not only that i think it's just fun okay so uh <laughs> all right to share so um here's the epic questionnaire 10 questions rapid fire answer when you're ready question 1 one, one word that you love the most I'd have to say peace. One word that you really really dislike. Impossible. If you could have a conversation with anybody, dead or alive, fictional, non-fictional, who would that be? My father? Hmm. What do you say to yourself 
uh, in the mirror every morning. Today's gonna be the day. <laughs> Name one superpower that you'd like to have. I've been thinking about flying. <laughs> Everybody keeps saying flying. Okay. Favorite dish to eat? It is still butter chicken. I'm such a cliche. <laughs> uh, next travel spot? Probably say Kyoto, Japan. Something in the arts that you've always wanted to do, but you have yet to do so. <laughs> you, you caught me off guard. There's something in the arts. I haven't thought about that for a while. Mm -hmm. Or something you've always wanted to do, but you have yet to do it. Okay, well, I, I'd say uh, that's an easy one. Scuba diving. What does retirement look like to you? A time, I've actually thought this out quite a bit. A time that's spent 50-50 between the beach and uh, perhaps helping the underprivileged. Okay, mm. okay. So you've got that planned out. Yeah, yeah I've got that Interesting. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, how do you want to be remembered? What's your legacy? Um, I haven't really thought about that yet. <laughs> I really haven't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. No worries, no worries, no worries about that. So we'll leave that one unanswered and perhaps <laughs> until the next one. But if you'd like to find out, all right, uh, maybe you could connect, um, you know, uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, whoever's listening out there, uh, you could actually connect uh, with Tusha. Um, how yeah. would they connect with you perhaps to find out what your legacy will be? <laughs> well, yeah, obviously LinkedIn, <laughs> most straightforward way to connect. Um, right. Yeah, and uh, always available, always happy to have a chat. Um, I actually do that, uh, you know, at least maybe once in two weeks, I end up meeting with practical strangers uh, over a coffee just because they've got interesting backgrounds and I want to learn a little bit about them. Yeah, That's so cool. Yeah. Now, um, do visit Hacker Trail if you'd like to find out a little bit more. Yep. All and right, GetScout.ai. All right. So thanks so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this one as much as I did. And of course, Tushar, thanks so much for awesome. taking the time to be on this podcast and um Hope we can do this again. Yeah, absolutely. This was fun. Thanks a lot, Edric. All right. Have Appreciate a good it. one. Thank Cheers. you. All right. We're good. Thanks. See, we really did an hour, you know.